This morning, we are going to be looking at one of the utterances of the angel on that historic morning when Jesus was brought into the world. Now, last week, we took a look at the first one. The first one is in Luke chapter 2, verse 10 and 11. And this is what the angel said. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. As soon as that angel was done, it says in verse 13, Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, and so here's the second angelic utterance, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now notice there's a difference between these two utterances of the angels. In the first one, you have one angel speaking. In the second, you have a whole multitude of the angelic host speaking. In the first one, the angel is speaking to men. And in the second one, the angel is praising God. In the first one, you have a message of gospel, good news, of great joy. In the second one, you have a message of praise and worship directed towards God. So first we have one angel speaking a word of witness to these shepherds. Then you have a whole multitude of angels speaking a word of worship that goes to God. So first of all, a word of proclamation, then a word of praise. We're going to be looking at that second angelic utterance today. But before we do, let's go back in our mind's eye and let's just review the events of chapter 2. Remember in chapter 2, that Caesar Augustus had made this imperial edict, this decree, that everyone within the realm of his kingdom had to go to their hometown to be registered for a census. Well, of course, that includes two young people, probably in their teens, Joseph and Mary, who were betrothed, who were legally married, but had not consummated the relationship yet. Mary is eight and a half months pregnant, with the Son of God. And this requires that she make an 85-mile journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem in order to register for the census. Nothing else in the world could have prompted and motivated that couple to make this journey other than the emperor of the world commanding it. So God has his way. The fulfillment of Micah 5.2 comes to pass that out of Bethlehem will come the Messiah, the one whose goings forth are from of old, from of everlasting, so they make the journey, this tedious, difficult journey for this young girl, eight and a half months pregnant with a baby. They arrive there, and there's no room for them anywhere. We all know the story, don't we? There's no relatives, there's no friends that can take them in, there's no vacancy signs on every inn in Bethlehem, which is a tiny town to begin with. There's just no place for them to stay. And so, they're homeless. They have no home. They have no place except for a crude shelter, uh, some kind of a stable or cave that they're able to find. And that's where they take shelter for the night. And it's during that time that Mary goes into labor and without a doctor and without a midwife, apparently just Joseph and Mary together, she gives birth to the Son of God. There is no bassinet or crib to put the baby in so she lies him in the only place she's got which is a feeding trough 
for animals, a manger. Well, about that time, God decides that he wants to make an announcement. It's, I mean, we would have thought that God would have go, gone to the high priest of Israel or to the Sanhedrin or to the movers and shakers of the wealthy, the influential people. But it's just like our Lord, isn't it, that he would announce this to some shepherds <laughs> of all people, the people on the bottom rung of the social circle in Israel at that time. They were akin to uh, tax collectors in terms of being sort of looked on as the offscouring of the world. They were unclean because of their daily interaction with dead animal carcasses. They couldn't enter the temple. They were cut off from the rest of the people of Israel. They were looked on as inferior and unintelligent. They had no trade except for the fact that they could look after sheep. That was about it. So they were looked on as, as the lowest of the low. Well, the shepherd comes and he makes the announcement or the, excuse me, the angel comes, and he makes the announcement to those shepherds. And then a whole multitude of angels makes another announcement of worship and praise to God. And at the end of that announcement, these shepherds decide, hey, let's go and let's see what those angels have just told us about. So they make their trip to Bethlehem, and they see the Christ child, they find him in a manger, and they tell Mary and Joseph about this interesting angelic visitation that they've had and no doubt Joseph and Mary also share with the shepherds the interesting angelic visitations that they've had and they're putting two and two together and swapping stories and and then there's other people that have just happened by and they notice there's a brand new baby that's been born out in the open under this crude shelter and so they're dropping by and the shepherds are sharing with these people about who this individual is that has just been born revealed to them by the shepherds themselves. And eventually the shepherds decide to go back to their flocks, and as they go back, they glorify and praise God for all the things that they've seen and heard. Now I'm really tempted this morning to go off and talk about the shepherds, because the shepherds provide a glorious example for us of what we ought to be like. They heard the message of the good news, they believed the message of the good news. They witnessed to the message of the good news, and then they worshiped God for the message of the good news. First they heard it, didn't they? The angels declared the message of the gospel to them. And not only did they hear it, but after that they believed it. Now how do we know that they believed this message? Well, notice what they say. They said in verse 15, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and let's see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. They didn't say, let us go to Bethlehem and see if what the angel said is really true. They didn't doubt it. They believed that it was true and so they said, let's go and see it. Let's, let's witness for ourselves that which the angel has told to us. So they heard the message of the good news. They believed it and acted on it. And then they began to tell other people about it, didn't they? It says in verse um, 18, And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. So the shepherds were speaking about all the things that they had seen and heard. And then they went back just glorifying and praising God. So there is a message, and then there's faith. And then there is a witness to that faith, and then there is worship beautiful things that we should be seeing in all of our lives. But I'm not going to talk to you about the shepherds this morning. 
I want to talk to you about verse 14. I want to talk to you about this second angelic utterance this morning. Some people say this is a song. And it sounds like a song when you read it, doesn't it? But it actually says they were saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. So I don't take this as a song. I take this as something that they were speaking. The angels were speaking this out. Now there's a lot of these angels, aren't there? So either all these angels are chanting this together in unison, or else the shepherds would never have been able to figure out what they were saying if they're all saying it at different times. So they're probably either saying it all together, or perhaps it was sort of a round where one group of angels over here says the first part, glory to God in the highest. And then you have all this other group of angels over here saying, and on earth, peace among men with whom he is well pleased. We don't know. And it's not that important. What is important is the actual truth of what these angels were declaring. And that's what I want to focus with you on this morning. Notice verse 14. There are some parallels going on. There's three sets of parallels going on. First of all, the word glory in verse 14. Glory is parallel to the word peace. Glory to God, peace on earth. God is parallel to men. The highest is parallel to earth. So you've got God, men, the highest earth, and glory and peace. So what we have taking place here is that the angels are declaring the outcome or the result of the birth of this baby. The, the one angel declares that he's been born. The whole multitude declares why he's been born. What's going to happen as a result of him being born? Two things. The one thing concerns God. The other thing concerns man. What accrues to God as a result of the birth of this baby? Glory. What accrues to man as a result of this baby? Peace. Glory to God in the highest, peace to men on earth. So let's open up those phrases this morning. Let's take a look first of all at the first one. Glory to God in the highest. Now what do we mean by in the highest? Well interestingly in the Greek the word highest is in the plural. That doesn't come out in our English translations, but it's actually plural. So he was saying glory to God in the highest places, or glory to God in the highest of the heavens. Remember, Paul talks about the third heaven. There's more than one. <laughs> There's a heaven that surrounds this planet. It's our atmosphere. There's the starry heavens, and then there is the heaven of heavens where God immediately dwells, and his Shekinah glory fills that place. It's what the place we want to go when we die. We want to be with the Lord. Glory to God in the highest of the heavens, the angels are proclaiming. But then the second question we want to ask is, well, what did they mean by the glory of God? Glory to God in the highest. This is one of those phrases that we have a hard time wrapping our minds around, don't we? We use it a lot. We talk all about the glory of God constantly, but it's difficult to explain to somebody else what we mean by that. I'm going to give you a really simple definition of the glory of God. The glory of God is the manifestation of God's perfections. The manifestation of God's perfections. Or to put it a different way, 
it's God putting his excellencies on display for his creatures. Now, the reason I say that to you is something that I, I see here in the book of Exodus chapter 33. So we're going to go back to Exodus 33 and take a look at verses 18 to 23 this morning. Here we have Moses having this interchange with the Almighty. And in Exodus 33, 18, Moses says, I pray you, show me your glory. So Moses wants to see God's glory. Notice what God says to him in response. God says, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So evidently, it is not possible for a human being to be exposed to the full glory of God without being incinerated in his presence. In order for us even to see a little bit of the glory of God, he's got to... He's got to cover it. He's got to put his hand over it. And then he lets us see just his back parts. But here, Moses says, Lord, let me see your glory. And God says, okay, I'll let you see it. This is what it is. I'm going to let you see my goodness. I'm going to let you hear me proclaim the name of the Lord. And I'm going to show compassion to whom I will show compassion. And I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious. So basically, Moses says, I want to see your glory. And God says, okay, my glory is my goodness. My glory is my name. My glory is my sovereignty. Because I am gracious to whom I will be gracious. I am compassionate to whomever I decide to be compassionate towards. And if you think that's a stretch, let's go to the next chapter. Because we have a further unfolding of the glory of God. In Exodus 34, verse 6, then it says, The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed... Now here he's going to show him his glory, remember. So here he proclaims his glory. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. So when God reveals his glory, he reveals who he is. He reveals that he's compassionate. He reveals that he's gracious, that he's slow to anger, that he abounds in loving kindness and truth, that he forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, that he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. What's he doing? He's revealing his attributes. He's putting himself on display for his creatures. That's God glorifying himself. So when the angel said, glory to God in the highest, what they were saying is that the birth of this baby who is coming into the world is going to put on display the perfections of God for everyone to see. God is going to reveal who he is before his watching world. The creation will see the glory of God through the birth of this one, this baby. 
God is compassionate. God is gracious. God is patient. God is loving, kind, and faithful, and true, and sovereign, and just. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Now, when Jesus came into the world, Jesus came for the purpose of dying. And it's especially in the cross that we see the perfections of God being put on display. And I really believe that's what the angels were saying when they said, this baby has come. He's come for a reason. He's come to die. And as he does die, glory to God. So let's think about the attributes that are going to be put on display when Jesus goes to the cross. Number one, wisdom. Oh, the wisdom of God in contriving the plan of redemption that he contrived. How wise was the Lord? God become a man. That's enough for us to sit down and think about for another 2,000 years. Sometimes it blows my mind to think of that. If it doesn't blow your mind, it means you have a very low view of God. Think about who God is. He condenses himself into a little baby dependent upon his mother. The infinite, the immortal, the great I am, the one who has no beginning and no end, there, nothing can limit him. This is the one who became a human being. And then he does that for the purpose of representing a people. He becomes the federal head. The, the representative head of a group of people that he will save through this one. And then not only does he do that, but he contrives a plan whereby this one who comes into the world will live a righteous life. Not for himself, but because his people need righteousness put to their account because they're sinners and they have none of their own. And in order to ever stand before God and be accepted, they must be clothed with righteousness. So God's plan, I'll become a man. I'll represent a people. I will live a perfect life for them. Then I will suffer and die on their behalf. Then I'll be raised from the dead, exalted to the heaven. I will intercede for each one of them that they will make it safely home. And I'm going to come back for them one day. And they will dwell with me for all eternity. What wisdom. What wisdom was in the mind of God, especially in the cross, that through that act, these people would be redeemed. Not only is wisdom put on display, but power. What kind of power is it going to take to do what God wants to do for these people? Think about their condition. They're dead. They're helpless. They're blind. They're deaf. They are displeasing to God. They are corrupt and depraved and thoroughly sinful in every faculty of their being. They're enslaved. They're enchained to sin. They're enslaved to Satan. It's going to take a lot of power to do something that can actually free these people and make them the liberated worshipers of God. So the cross shows us the power of God. The cross has enough power to free you and I from our slavery to sin from our slavery to Satan, from death, and from hell. The cross can redeem us. But not only that, but it puts God's love on display, doesn't it? Sometimes we want God to sort of speak to us audibly or from heaven and, and tell us, my son, my daughter, I love you. 
But if you ever want to know if God loves you or not, that's not the place to look. The place to look, according to the scriptures, is the cross. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's where he demonstrated his love for us. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. The love of God is displayed to us in the cross of Jesus. Do you see the perfections that are being put on display at the cross? Wisdom, love, power. Here's another one, grace. Before the cross took place, God had displayed his wisdom and his goodness and his power in creating the world. He had even displayed something of his justice in banishing the fallen angels from his presence to be kept under judgment for the great day. There was even that. But to the far corners of the universe, there was no grace or mercy ever displayed. If God wants to show who he is, he's going to have to have a people that he redeems. He's going to have, a, have to have a cross that actually uh, redeem and free and set people uh, liberated from their chains. And so at the cross, that's what takes place. We have the putting on display of the mercy and grace of our King. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us what? All things. Grace was purchased for us. Grace was secured for the people of God there at the cross. The mercy, the overflowing, boundless mercy of God. We've already talked about that, haven't we, back in Exodus 33 and 34. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will be compassionate on whom I will be compassionate. And that compassion and that grace was secured for the people of God through the cross. God's perfections displayed for his creatures. Another one, holiness. Holiness is put on display at the cross. How so? It shows to us the links that God has to go through if he's ever going to receive a guilty fallen sinner into his presence. God is going to have to be willing to crush his own son if ever any of us will ever be in his presence. You see that? If God was an unholy God, it wouldn't matter to him. He would just receive us into his presence. But he's too pure to look upon sin. And so for him to have fellowship with human beings, there has to be a cross that is able to satisfy God's holy and righteous requirements. The law of God must be vindicated and honored through the righteous sufferings of Christ. So God's holiness is put on display at the cross. Not only that, his justice is seen, isn't it? You know, there's only two places that the justice of God will be seen. Hell and the cross. And if you think about those two places, the superior place that manifests the justice of God is not hell. Because people there will be punished forever and ever and ever. And they will, their justice will never fully be satisfied because it keeps on going forever and ever and ever. It never ends. But at the cross, it ends. <laughs> At the cross, Christ made an end of sin. He satisfied the wrath of God against sin. It's put away forever. The justice of God is finally and fully satisfied 
for his people there at the cross. So we have God's justice put on display, his holiness, his grace, his love, his mercy, and also his faithfulness. Because God had been giving promises of what he would do to save a people from the beginning of time. From Genesis 3.15 on, God had been making these declarations that he was going to raise up a seed of the woman who had crushed the head of the serpent. The seed of Abraham is going to come into the world, and in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. That he would be like Abraham's son Isaac, that Abraham would offer up in sacrifice. That he would be the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. The festivals, the types and shadows of the high priest, the uh, Melchizedek. All of those different shadows and things that we find in the Old Testament, Jesus comes to fulfill. And God is faithful. And at the cross, we see him finally and fully offering up his son to fulfill the promises that he had made. So the angels were telling the truth when they said, glory to God in the highest. Because this babe is going to bring great glory to God. Without Jesus coming into the world, we wouldn't see the half of God's glory. But now we see him. He's shown us who he is. Numbers 23.19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? And I love the, the saying of John Calvin. This is what Calvin said. Let us remember then the final cause why God reconciled us to himself through his only begotten son. It was that he might glorify his name by revealing the riches of his grace and of his boundless mercy. Did you catch that? Calvin is saying why he believed that God has brought Jesus Christ into the world to reconcile sinners. It was that God might glorify God's own name by revealing the riches of God's own grace and of God's own boundless mercy. You see, God is God-centered. God delights in exalting himself. And there's nothing wrong in that. There's everything right in that because God is perfect. He's holy. It would be wrong for God not to exalt his own self. If God exalted sinners at the expense of himself, that would be unrighteous. The only righteous thing for a perfect and holy God is to exalt himself, and that's what we find him doing through his son, the Lord Jesus. So the first phrase of the angels, glory to God in the highest. The second phrase of the angels is, peace on earth toward men. Now, we've got some questions to ask about this peace. First of all, what kind of peace were the angels talking about? Peace on earth toward men. How many here have ever watched the uh, Peanuts Christmas special? Come on now, put your hands. Okay, some of you have done it. Caleb said he's had I don't think Caleb's watched it. <laughs> oh, really? Okay, all right. Well, as a kid, I would watch that every year. And my favorite part, believe it or not, was when Linus goes up before his class and he reads the Christmas story. And I always got these little goosebumps and fluttery feelings when he read the story and he says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And in my little mind, I thought that meant, oh, so that's the message of Christmas. 
Christmas means that Jesus came into the world so that we would be at peace with each other and that we would be expressing goodwill amongst person to person. But then as I got older, I began to think that really didn't happen, did it? We have wars and people are fighting and there's crime and our jails are filled. That didn't happen as a result of that first Christmas. And it's because I misinterpreted the King James translation of that verse. You'll notice that our translations don't translate it that way. I don't believe that the angels were talking about peace between us and other people. That might be an indirect result of it, but that's not the primary concern of what the angels were saying. And I also don't think they were talking about this inner peace, this tranquility of soul. I think it was much more important than that. Remember the context. The first angel, what did he talk about? Yeah. A Savior has been born. A Savior has come from heaven to earth. So when the angel said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, I take myself right back to verse 10 and 11, which talks about a Savior has come from heaven to earth to grant peace. What kind of peace did he come to bring? Salvation peace. Objective peace, not subjective feelings of peace, but an objective reality of peace. You say, what do you mean, Brian? I mean that before our conversion, we were not at peace with God. We were enemies of God. We were rebels, weren't we? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace, not of God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have salvation peace. Instead of being rebels and enemies, we have been made into friends. The war is over. We've dropped the battle. We've waved the white flag of unconditional surrender. And we've said, we acknowledge that you are king and master and Lord. We bow. We surrender to your lordship, Lord Jesus. So peace is established between us and God. I believe that's the kind of peace he's talking about. The Bible says that he made peace through the blood of what? His cross. That's where peace was established between us and God. I believe the angels are declaring this one who brings glory to God in the highest is going to bring salvation, peace through the blood of his cross on earth toward men. And then all the other kinds of peace flow from that one. Inner peace comes from that. Peace between you and other people flow from that. But the one he's really emphasizing is this is the Savior who brings peace towards us and with us. John, or excuse me, Charles Wesley in his famous hymn said, peace on earth, mercy mild. Well, what kind of peace, Charles Wesley? God and sinners reconciled. That's the peace he's talking about. Reconciliation between the Lord of heaven and sinners. Now, who receives this peace? Who gets to have it? Who experiences it? Look at the version. The New American Standard says, On earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. That's who gets it. Those men on earth with whom he is pleased. Now, literally, the Greek says this. Peace on earth to men of good pleasure. And that's why you have so many different translations. It, Take a look at 10 different translations and you'll find 10 different versions of how people translate this passage. It's peace on earth to men of good pleasure. Now, what did he mean by that? 
There's different interpretations of what that means. I'm going to go through a few of them with you. Number one, this means peace comes to those who possess goodwill towards God. And this comes out of the King James interpretation or the translation of the passage. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. So the peace on earth comes to those who have a goodwill, and they say it's a goodwill toward God. So if someone has a goodwill towards God, or in other words, his heart is soft towards God, he's well-intentioned toward God, then God will favor that one. He'll reward that person with salvation peace. That's one interpretation. Do you see any flaws in that one? How many people on this planet are good-intentioned towards God? Zero. <laughs> Nobody. The Bible says in Romans 8, 7, that the mind set on the flesh... And by the way, that's a phrase that describes who? The unregenerate man, unconverted people. The mindset in the flesh is hostile, not well-intentioned. It's hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh, another phrase descriptive of unregenerate people, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So there we have it. If God's looking for well-intentioned people who have a good will towards Him, and He'll give those people salvation, nobody's going to get saved. No one's going to heaven. Interpretation number two. Peace, salvation, peace comes to those who please God. This would be a result of the New American Standard translation, which says, peace among men with whom He's pleased. And some would say this means, well, God is just looking out over the human race, and there are some people that please him because they have a heart to believe. They have a willingness to repent. They please God in some form or fashion, and so God rewards them with salvation peace. Oh boy. Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. If God's looking for unbelievers that please him, there aren't any of those either. Because none of them believe. You know, I, I usually really like the New American Standard translation. This is one of the few times where I'm not crazy about it. I think they could have done a little bit better on this particular translation. Because it could lead you to believe that God finds some people that He's pleased with and He gives them peace. But again, think about it. If that was the meaning of this phrase, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, salvation peace toward men with whom He finds that He's pleased, why would these angels be praising God? Right? It says that they're praising God. They ought to be praising those people who are well-intentioned or those people that God was pleased with because they had done something to in some way attract or merit the grace or favor of God. But instead, they're not praising men. They're praising God, aren't they? Which leads me to Interpretation number three, which I believe is the correct one. Salvation peace comes to the objects of God's sovereign grace. I believe that's what this phrase means. Men of good pleasure. Whose good pleasure are we talking about? God's. I'll tell you why I believe that. First, the Greek word for good pleasure, eudikia, occurs nine times in our New Testament. So that's eight other times than this one. Six of those eight times, it refers to God's good pleasure. 
So the overwhelming majority of the times it appears in the New Testament, it's not talking about man, it's talking about God and his good pleasure. Number two, we have a companion verse in the same gospel, Luke chapter 10, verse 21, which Jesus there is praying, and he says, At that very time, Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit, and he said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you did hide these things from the wise and intelligent, and did reveal them to babes. Yes, Father, for thus it was, there's our word, well-pleasing in your sight. So Jesus is praying, and he's thanking God for something, isn't he? He's thanking God that the Lord has hid certain truths from wise and intelligent people, and he revealed those same truths to simple, unintelligent, babe-like people. And Jesus gives us the reason why God has done it. Why is it? It's well-pleasing to him to do it that way. He doesn't say it was because these people were a little bit better or had a little bit softer heart than others. He says God was just well-pleased. There's our Greek word eudikia. He was well-pleased to reveal it to these babes. There's also another verse that goes right along with this, and it's Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, where that Greek word comes up again, eudikia. Ephesians 1, 4 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now he's going to explain what he just said with a parallel statement. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to, literally, the good pleasure of his will. According to his eudikia, his goodwill, his good pleasure. So that word good pleasure, when it's ascribed to God, means his sovereign intention to bestow grace and mercy upon the undeserving. When the angel said, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, salvation, peace, to men of God's good pleasure. They're simply saying, salvation comes to those that God has ordained that it will come to. That God is the sovereign king in this matter. That in the final analysis, it's not up to man, it's up to Almighty God. Listen to Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. Now this is like the authority on the New Testament Greek. This is what he says about this Greek word eudikia. This good pleasure is grounded in God alone and influenced by none else. It is his gracious resolution to save. We must understand eudikia as the unfathomably gracious and sovereign good pleasure of God in the sense of his decree as a decree of free grace and favor. Thus, eudikia in the angel song refers to God's gracious counsel addressed in free and incomprehensible favor to the people of his elect. That's what I'm trying to tell you this morning. This is another one of those statements that if you just listen to Linus read the Christmas story, you're never going to understand. But if you go a little bit deeper and, and discover what the original words meant, you say, wow, the angels understand the sovereign grace of God maybe better than we do. They were worshiping the Lord of heaven for that sovereign grace towards people when he was first brought into the world. Have you? ever worshiped and praised God for his sovereign grace towards you. 
that if it were not for his resolute mercy towards you and I, we would be burning in the flames of hell for all eternity. But he has had pity and compassion and mercy towards us in his son. That's what the angels are worshiping for. Let's boil all this down this morning to two ideas. And those ideas, number one is this. We should imitate the angels regarding worship. The angels are wonderful examples for us in terms of worship. Whenever you read the book of Revelation, you read about angels singing and falling down. In fact, it's not even the angels in heaven, is it? It's the 24 elders, probably representative of us. They're falling down. In fact, do a study of the book of Revelation someday and look up the 24 elders. Every time you find them in, in the book of Revelation, they're on their faces. Which tells me it might not be such a bad idea if in worship, when we come together corporately, we get down on our faces sometimes. Maybe in our new facility, we'll have room to spread out and just <laughs> bow down in homage before him. I mean, being expressive, I think, in worship is a wonderful thing. Give vent to your heart filled with praise in practical, expressive ways. That's why people in the Old Testament would raise their hands or shout or dance. There's nothing wrong and everything good about being expressive of your love for Jesus. And I encourage you in that from week to week. Now, we don't do it because we're afraid of what people are going to think about us. But, you know, remember David, a man after God's own heart? Remember what he did? They were bringing the Ark of the Covenant up, and they were offering sacrifices each six spaces. He got out there in a linen ephod, which is just like an undergarment, and he was dancing with all his might before the Lord. And he goes back to his wife, and she criticizes him, and he says, you're going to be barren for this, because I was doing what I was doing not before you or anybody else. I was doing it before the Lord. And so when we worship, let's worship Him before the Lord with all of our being, including our bodies. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, might, and strength. With your might, with your physical body, worship Him. Raise your arms to Him. Raise your voices. Sing loudly. Be enthusiastic. Get on your knees. Stand before Him. Shout to Him. Dance. Give God the worship that He's worthy of. So this Christmas season, let's get together with our families. Let's worship Him. Let's worship Him. Secondly, let's worship these shepherds. These shepherds were great when it came to witnessing what they had seen, weren't they? They, went, they were telling everybody they saw what the angel had told them. Christmas is a great time for us to spread our witness for Christ. Because many times we'll be around people, we'll be gathered with people, that don't know him. So let's look for and let's pray for opportunities to do what the shepherds did. Just to tell people what we have experienced. We've seen him. The Holy Spirit has taken away the blinders. We can see his glory. At one time, we, we saw more glory in a dollar bill than we saw in the face of Jesus Christ. It held no special importance to us. But the Spirit of God has changed us, hasn't He? He's opened our eyes. He's shown in our hearts. And so tell people what you've seen. You've seen His glory. This babe is not just any ordinary babe. This babe is one that's going to save you from the great, almighty, 
wrath of God to be poured out upon all those who don't repent and believe the gospel. He's the one who's had mercy on your soul. Let's imitate the angels. Let's imitate those shepherds. Father, would you grant special grace to your people today to drink in this glorious text and to live out this glorious text. May this be a special season, Lord, of worship and witness. We pray for opportunities to tell of the great things you've done for us. And we pray that we might be faithful to worship you again and afresh. The incarnation, God become a man to save his people from their sins. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.